Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, report from the ground in Kharkiv, and discuss the realities of fighting in Ukraine's counteroffensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 6th of October, one year and 224 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, Defence Editor Daniel Sheridan, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, and Speaking from Grenada, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes, and Speaking from Kharkiv, Foreign Correspondent Colin Freeman. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start this morning. A 68-year-old woman and her 10-year-old grandson were killed in a Russian missile attack on Kharkiv this morning. That came from the Interior Minister Ihor Klimenko. The attack also injured 28, including the 68-year-old woman's 11-month-old grandchild. Two missiles hit the city just after dawn, about 6, I think just 20 past 6-ish, we're told. Uh, one of them ripped a 15-foot hole in the street in the centre of the city, damaged several nearby buildings. There are, if you, you have a look online, you'll find there's horrific images of destruction on social media. The blast wrecked windows up to, well, you see buildings six storeys high, bricks, glass, debris everywhere, cars, satellite, telegraph poles down, water mains burst. The second missile is believed to have struck on the outskirts of the city. Um, not entirely sure the, the the impact of that not immediately clear there appears uh, no obvious motivation for the location of these attacks locals have said that one of the buildings close to the scene of the city center blast had once been a television channel's offices but you know any more than that no idea now of course these strikes come just hours after yesterday's horrific blast in Gorozhia, which killed 52 people at the moment so this is about 50 k's southeast of Kharkiv, about 30 k's west of the front line. So hard to see how that could have been anything other than it could have been an accident. 
We think a local man by the name of Denis Kozier had organised a memorial service yesterday for his father, Andre. Ukrainian media are reporting that both men had joined the Ukrainian armed forces soon after the start of last year's full-scale invasion. After three days of combat, Andre, the father, received a fatal neck wound and was buried in a military cemetery in the Dnipropetrovsk region. In June this year, his son Denis was discharged from service due to health conditions. He then returned to Groza, got married, and we think decided to rebury his father. And then yesterday, about 60 people gathered in a cafe for the memorial service. Denis, his wife, his grandfather, grandmother, and his wife's mother were all killed in the blast. Now, Elizabeth Rossell, who's a spokeswoman for the UN Human Rights Office, speaking this morning, she said it's very difficult to establish with absolute certainty what happened. But given the location, given the fact that the cafe was struck, the indications are that it was a Russian missile. She continued, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, who saw for himself the horrific impact of such strikes, is profoundly shocked and condemns these killings. He has deployed a field team to the site to speak to survivors and gather more information. Now, responding to the attack, Ben Wallace, Britain's former Defence Secretary, said last night, uh, put a post on Twitter saying every time Russia strikes civilians and breaks international law by targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, there needs to be a response. We, as in the UK, he says, we did that with Starstreak, that's an anti-air missile, and Storm Shadow. Germany should now send their Taurus missile systems to Ukraine and join the UK and France. Now, Taurus is a cruise missile, range about 500 kilometres, very similar to Storm Shadow, has a precursor charge to get into a structure or an underground bunker and so on, and then almost half a tonne of uh, explosive for the main charge. Now, I was chatting to Ben Wallace this morning, and he also said... He said, we know that if Putin does not get a response to egregious actions, he will persist. The UK provided anti-air missiles in response to Russia's aerial bombing of civilian areas and storm shadow because of Crimea-based attacks on Odessa. France and the UK understand that. Germany's Taurus missiles will help send a strong message after yesterday's bombings and Russia will learn that their actions unite the international community, not divide them. Hoping to speak next week on the pod with Mr Wallace. Now, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he's under increasing pressure to send Taurus. Norbert Rogen, who's a senior MP for the opposition party CDU in Germany, said the Chancellor's refusal to deliver Taurus to the Ukrainians contributes to prolonging the war. This policy is therefore seriously flawed morally and politically. So it is building ahead of steam there. Now, separately, 24 Shahid drones, Russian-fired, Iranian-made Shahid drones, shot down yesterday out of a wave of 29. This is mainly in the southeast of the country. Settlements in the north, around Chernihiv, Sumy and Kharkiv, and in the east, Luhansk and Donetsk, and south, around Zaporizhia and Hezon, were hit by artillery fire. And then, I'm, I'm racing through it because we've got a lot to get through today. And then finally, Sweden is going to send Ukraine a new military support package worth 2.2 billion crowns. That's almost $200 million, consisting mainly of artillery ammunition. This is as per uh, from Defence Minister Paul Johnson speaking this morning. Mr Johnson said the government is also looking into whether Sweden can send Gripen fighter jets to Ukraine, but added that for domestic security reasons, Sweden would need to become a member of NATO before it would be able to spare any fighter jets. So clearly Sweden keeping the pressure on there to be um, admitted into NATO, just Hungary at the moment um, holding that up really. Uh, can't really blame him for that. And I'll take a pause there, David.
Well, thank you very much, Dom. Let's go to Colin Freeman, who's on the ground in Ukraine. Colin, you were in Groza uh, and you've done some reporting from there. Can you tell us what you saw and who you spoke to? We just pulled over by the roadside in a, a very wet thun- and, and windy thunderstorm in, somewhere in eastern Ukraine. Yes, we happened to be up on other business in Kharkiv yesterday, which was about an hour and a half's drive from Khorza, where the missile strike took place. So we were able to get there by about um, five in the evening. The missile strike was about quarter past one. And it, it was a yeah, it was a scene of absolute devastation. You couldn't even make out what kind of building had been hit. We understand it was some sort of cafe and rescue workers were still at the scene with a bulldozer. And there was just a, there was a very, very large area just full of corpses, most of them wrapped up in white body bags, but some of them still laid out on the ground, which I think is perhaps demonstrative of, of the, the scale of the task that the emergency services had. I think the, the death toll we were given at the time was 51 dead and seven injured, which suggests that practically everybody in the building was killed. And normally there's a few, the fatalities are outnumbered by the, those by the number of people wounded, whereas this time it was the other way around. Um, the vast majority of the casualties were actually dead rather than wounded. Would you tell us a little bit about the people you spoke to? I was particularly interested in your interview with Yuri Chikala. Yes, this, while I was stood at the scene, a man came up, a local man, smelt a bit of alcohol. He was, he was swaying slightly on his feet. You do get people in, in towns like this sometimes, and quite often they're, they're best avoided. But uh, he was very candid. He said, I'm sorry I've been drinking most of the afternoon because my wife was attending that gathering that was hit by the missile and she is dead. And he, you know, he, he, was, he was at his wit's end and he said he, he'd sought solace and drink for most of the afternoon and was wondering what he was going to do with the rest of his life. He said, uh, I love my wife. She was, you know, we were together for 38 years. What am I going to do with my life now? Just stand here and scream. What am I going to do tomorrow? Just drink, carry on drinking for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, it, it was, you, you don't often see the, the grief in, in that sort of rawness like that. But uh, on that occasion, it, it certainly came across very, very clearly. Well, it sounds utterly horrific, Colin. You, you, am I right in thinking you were back in Kharkiv as well? We, uh, Dom reported on some of these strikes this morning. Uh, yes. So um, having got back to Kharkiv last night, we were rudely awakened this morning by what I thought was a fighter jet flying over low over the hotel. It, just that, that noise that you get if you've ever heard a, a low-flying fighter jet on, on, on exercises, perhaps in in the Lake District in the UK or, or anywhere else. And um, I, I thought, well, that's probably a Ukrainian jet because Russian jets don't tend to fly on attack missions over the Ukrainian airspace, certainly over the big cities because of the air defences. That's what I assumed it was. And then seconds later, we heard two absolutely thunderous bangs. And as we later discovered, uh, it was two missiles hit the city, one of them downtown, one of them slightly further out into the suburbs. We went to the scene of one of them. It was an, an enormous crater torn in a, a downtown street, 10, 15 feet deep. 
caused a lot of damage to the neighbouring buildings, although we understand that I think only three people were actually injured, which which seems remarkable considering the, 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 the scale of the, the damage. But I think the fact that it ploughed right into the, uh, the, the centre of the street meant that the concrete on the high street um, probably took most of the impact. Well, thank you so much for joining, Colin. Do stay safe, and we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Joe Barnes, Brussels correspondent, can I come to you? You've been in Grenada for the the meeting of the European political community. Could you give us your sense of, of the, the meeting, what's been happening, and what are your takeaways? Yeah, hi folks, in a sort of sunny Granada, trying to find quiet spots at these summits is always difficult, but hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. So yeah, interesting. So the European political community was a it's a loose coalition of 50, up to 50 sort of European states, and it was born out of the idea of everyone needs to get together and oppose Russia and support Ukraine last year. So last October was the first rendition, and now this is the third rendition here in Spain. So yeah, interestingly, a lot of the focus was aimed at the US and whether the US uh, would be able to maintain its support for Ukraine. Um, So European leaders were quite candid in saying, look, we cannot fully replace the US support for Ukraine. Um, And interestingly, I I, I, I don't know if it's fortunate or not, but I've, I've seen Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, in the flesh quite a few times now which and you can always look at his body language and I think it tells you a lot about what is happening and as he arrived at the summit yesterday he looked weary and tired and that's and and almost downbeat more well more downbeat than he usually is I don't know if it's is it the fact that he's just had a busy few days or is actually now he's starting to worry because without sort of US support, European support, Ukraine would be stuck and facing sort of a military defeat by Russia. But so arriving at the summit, he warned that his main challenge was now keeping the West united behind Kyiv. He warned that Vladimir Putin would continue to stoke tensions to divide Europe amid what he described as a political storm in the United States. He said it's a difficult election period for the US. There are different voices and some of those voices are very strange. And then he said the main challenge we have now is to save the unity of Europe. So that's kind of referring to a few things, is he really needs Europe to sort of step up to the plate, to potentially look at replacing, even though they've said they can't, replace US aid. And then there's there's small splinters uh, appearing in Europe for the first time. You have, we've as we've reported on, Poland said it won't send any more military aid to Ukraine while it builds its own armed forces up. And then Slovakia, where we reported on Robert Fico, uh, the pro-Russian populist who won the recent election there, he has also withdrawn military support. Ukraine. So it's interesting that some of Europe's most ardent backers of Ukraine are sort of going out the door. So then throughout the day, Zelensky basically, he gave an address to the 45 or so leaders amassed in Granada, uh, which contained a few points. One, he told a story of Kharkiv and how children were having to be schooled either at home on laptops or there were several schools for about a thousand children established in the subway system. Those who have visited Kharkiv will know that the metro and subway system there is is not being used and is more used as a bomb shelter these days. He pleaded for more air defence systems to counter what is expected to be another Russian campaign of strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure aimed at freezing Ukraine throughout the cold winter. And then, as I said, he called for unity. So the EU, Joseph Burrell, he 
the EU's top foreign diplomat affirmed that Europe would never be able to replace the US. Zelensky received a few promises of help. Uh, interestingly, the Germans, after he met with Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, said that they were exploring another delivery of a Patriot missile battery to the American-made air defence system, which is much loved in Kyiv. And Spain also promised to ship Hawk surface-to-air missile systems, which are they look like mini rockets on on sticks, kind of the most James Bond bad guy villain weapon that I've seen of late. And but largely, Europe did what it was kind of expected to do and rode behind Ukraine and continued to offer that support. And then what I'll say next was interesting. So in so Volodymyr Zelensky gave a speech and he say he spoke about kids in kids in subway schools in Kharkiv. But he then he then went on to basically warn Europe and especially Eastern Europe and the Baltics that if Europe and the US don't step up to the plate and basically help Ukraine finish the job that Russia will be able to rebuild its military by 2028 effectively strong enough to invade potentially a Baltic state or another Eastern European state that is in Vladimir Putin's sort of greater perceived plans for a new Soviet Union. And this is what this is what Zelensky had to say. If there is any pause in this aggression against Ukraine, any freezing of the situation, then there will be a critical moment. 2028. If Russia is allowed to adapt now, by 2028, the Kremlin will be able to restore the military potential we have destroyed and Russia will have enough power to attack the countries that are in the focus of Russian expansion. And he cited that as, as intelligence gathered by the Ukrainian intelligence services of these perceived Russian plans. So it's, it's, it's interesting that it was kind of a multifaceted visit. He, it's, it's great for him. He was, it's an opportunity for him to speak to as many people as possible. He, was, he had talks with Emmanuel Macron, with Rishi Sunak. So Rishi Sunak offered to guarantee a $500 million loan through the World Bank for Ukraine to essentially help Ukraine fund its efforts throughout the winter. Britain offered to buy it, pay £10 million towards energy purchases. So if Ukraine needs to go to international markets to buy electricity this year, it would do that. And he offered to basically continue with weapons deliveries. But yeah, like it's a good opportunity for Zelensky to have some face time with all these leaders who have rode in behind him and given him lots of backing. But uh, he often is forced to do that over the telephone or in meetings in Kyiv. It never will have so many leaders in the same room as him. And then today, the larger contingent of European leaders have left and there's now a, a meeting of the EU27 happening informally here in Spain and they are discussing enlargement and that will, with a focus on how can the EU reform itself enough to, to be able to let Ukraine in the doors and there, there's hope that they can have that done by 2030 to admit Ukraine as a member of the EU, which is one of its key sort of main political goals alongside joining NATO as a result of the war. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. Just to say to our listeners, of course, we spoke to our Europe editor, James Crisp, yesterday at length about uh, Ukraine's journey towards the EU. So if you missed that, do go back to yesterday's episode and listen to that. Joe, just quickly, before we go to Roland Oliphant, Joe, how long are you staying in Granada? Are you, are you reporting for another few days or are you back to Brussels? Back to uh, Madrid tonight, where I have a layover and then early Saturday morning, I'll be back in Brussels. So uh, be sad to, sad to leave sunny Granada, but uh, all good things come to an end, as do European summits every so often. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really good hearing you. Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? In your last trip to Ukraine last month, you spoke to a number of soldiers to get a sense of the realities of what fighting on the front line 
in the counteroffensive is like. Reading your reporting, it sounded exhausting and difficult, made even harder by the organised and disciplined Russian defences. What did those soldiers tell you? Yeah, I mean, like these, it's about a month since I spoke to them now, actually. It's been going on. So forgive me if my memory plays tricks on me, but... These were guys from the the forty seventh brigade, which is one of the one of the brigades that was trained by NATO instructors and built up basically to take part in the big push. And if you remember back in spring in the run up to this, there were, you know, there's always talk about who's going to take part in it, this and that. These are guys who are given a lot of the shiny Western kit. So they operate Bradley fighting vehicles, they operate leopard tanks, they're issued with American rifles. They were trained in, trained you know across Europe in about three different countries. So they were they were created for this fight. And I spoke to some guys who'd been in combat basically for three months at that point. So went into action on the first day of the offensive. And when I was there, they were still. And when I spoke to them, they weren't literally in action. They were in a rear area, resting up in a under some trees in an area concealed from uh, Russian observation. But effectively, their their unit was still in combat at that point. And yes, I mean, as, as you described, their account of it was it is absolutely exhausting and really, really, really difficult terrain going up against what they described as incredibly well-prepared Russian defences. They, and I wouldn't use the word they had respect for their opponent. You often see that as a trope of military writing and, and reporting about wars. But they definitely weren't underestimating the Russians on the other side. You know, they, they were not playing down the, the professionalism or the, um, or the motivation of the enemy. And there also, there was also, I think, fair to say, you know, a degree of anger about how um, you know things obviously didn't go well at the beginning of the offensive. In fact, these guys were in one of these guys was in a, in a in a fighting vehicle on the first night of the offensive, heading towards in this armored thrust that was meant to punch through the front line. His vehicle was struck very quickly by a by an anti tank missile fired by a Russian helicopter. The Bradley. To be fair, he says the Bradley saved his life. The Bradley survived that hit and everyone inside survived it. But that initial attack, as we all know now, ground, basically ground to a halt very quickly. And these guys basically said it became very clear to to them, speaking simply as ordinary squaddies. Uh, we were talking about privates and junior NCOs. The, the highest ranking person I spoke to was a, was a captain in a sapper unit. The opinion was it was pretty clear to the ordinary grunts that wasn't going to work um, within a few hours. And then, of course, there was this big change in tactics, um, which we still see today, but which hasn't yet really generated that breakthrough that, that everyone was hoping for. Well, we'll get on to the tactics and the changing tactics slightly later. But just before that, could you set the scene a little bit? You've written quite a lot about the geography of the battlefield in the south. Could you talk more about that? What is it exactly? And how does it impact and influence the fight that's going on? All right, so this this part of Ukraine is is relatively flat. So basically, the, the kind of southern third of Ukraine is something called the Pontic Steppe. And that basically means Pontic refers to the Black Sea. It's, it's the steppe on the northern shore of, of the Black Sea. It's generally flatter than you'll see in Donbass where we get into a kind of massif with kind of low rolling valleys and things like that but essentially it was in its natural state before settlement which is only a few hundred years ago really it was it, it was a steppe a wild field it was traversed by Tatar nomads and Cossacks and people like that but there wasn't much permanent settlement and so on that began to change in the kind of under the Russian Empire and 
around. Our, sorry, I know this is a bit of a history lesson, but, but we're getting to the point, right? I promise. And then late 19th century, kind of end of the Russian Empire, early Soviet Union, you know, you really get into kind of industrialized agriculture and things like this. And somebody, some bright spark came up with the idea of, look, this is very open. It's very, it's very fertile land, but very open, very exposed. What we need here are windbreaks to, to prevent uh, you know, if you're going to sow this area to prevent seeds and topsoil from being blown away. It began, this process of planting trees in this area, which was not a forested area, began before the revolution in 1917, but it really gets going after the Second World War. And there's a kind of a, a full kind of Soviet Union-wide plan for this kind of thing. And the result is, if you look at a map of the battlefield, if you look at Deep State or something, you'll see it. The landscape is divided into these fields that are not it's not completely uniform but it's about most of these fields about a kilometer ish across and probably maybe two or three deep it varies a bit but basically squares and rectangles divided by these tree lines that were planted as windbreaks and those tree lines have now matured into you know quite quite impressive thick places so some in some places it's quite thin in some places it's quite a thick forest strip good big strong oak trees holly poplar quite a lot of kind of you know for the biologists around here you know <laughs> insect life mammal life bird life is kind of supported there and one of my ideas one of my theories is that that's why when we drive through that part of ukraine you know the car gets covered in kind of dead insects in a way that you just don't see in britain anymore these days and i kind of suspect that the tree lines are sustaining that biodiversity anyway so that's the history but that is what is defining the entire battlefield and what these guys said to me was this is a tree line war the fields are completely flat, completely exposed. There is nowhere to hide. There is no way to avoid to approach the front line without being spotted by Russian surveillance drones. The same is true of the Russians on the other side, by the way. It's almost entirely transparent battlefield. Your only cover anywhere is the tree line, which means everybody digs in to defend the tree line, which means you've got to assault the tree line. You're probably your best way of approaching the tree line you've got to assault is to fight your way up the perpendicular tree line that leads to it because it's in a grid pattern, right? These tree lines meet each other at right angles. So every tree line is fortified. Everyone's dug in there. The trick is to assault the tree line, capture it, but then you've got to get enough of your guys in before another counterattack comes in. And essentially, the entire battle, the way these guys described it, had become this tree line defined war. And that's what they count progress in. That's what they're talking about. You know, you see a lot of this analysis about the Surovikin line and, oh, they're through the dragon's teeth or, you know, you can draw these lines on maps. That's a little bit misleading, I think, talking to these guys, because actually it's not, it's not just those big trench systems that people can spot on satellites and say, this is where the Russians are. Actually, basically every single tree line, they're dug in, ATGM teams, covered trenches, all kinds of complex defensive systems and all of it fronted by by landmines so you can imagine how formidable uh, an obstacle that is and that has a lot to do with why things are going so slowly well thank thank you very much roland for that They're very comprehensive so let's bring this back to the tactics then you've sketched out the nature of the battlefield uh we've talked a little bit about the slow progress made right at the beginning and indeed the slow progress now so could you just chart for us how ukrainian tactics have changed in the past few months yeah so so they went into this basically attempting a classic kind of armoured breakthrough, blitzkrieg as you will. They went in with armoured vehicles and 
tanks. You know, they basically drove straight at the Russian lines. The idea was to punch a hole through, infantry dismount, clear the trenches, and create a breach, and way hey, off we go all the way down to the Sea of Azov with, you know, you can draw arrows on maps going in all kinds of, of different directions. As soon as the vehicles run into these incredibly thick minefields that cannot be quickly cleared, and suddenly Russian anti-tank guided missile teams are, are, are popping up in the tree lines and knocking out the vehicles, it became becomes clear that they have to switch to smaller units. So it's, it's actually, the way they were describing it, it's relatively small groups of men fighting their way, usually up along the tree lines, and then they have to gain a foothold in a Russian trench, expand that foothold, then get enough people in to hold it because the Russians will counterattack. You have to move in quite small groups because, as I was saying earlier, the battlefield is basically completely exposed to, to surveillance of drones. Getting through the minefields is incredibly difficult and incredibly slow, so you'd have to have a lot of reconnaissance to work out where the gaps in the minefields are, and if not, to punch through them. I mean, one, of the, one, of the, you know, one of the sappers I was talking to was saying, well, actually... Quite often what we have to do if we're, if we're working with the infantry and we're right on the front is we will assault. So the sappers will assault with the infantry into the Russian position through the minefield and then only then they start working back to clear a path through it. So, so incredibly difficult. And the, when you get into these fights in the trenches, it's incredibly close quarters stuff, which comes down, a lot of the survival seems to come down to luck and and sheer kind of refusal to give up in a way but they described a specific fight to me it was you know, frankly frankly terrifying and, and the way they said we're basically incredibly lucky to have come out of that alive but they did take that trench well finally roland could you just tell us that story i mean i know it forms part of the at the end of your dispatches these these soldiers talking you through exactly that how they assaulted a russian trench can you tell us from that from their perspective what happened sure so this was a this is a russian position Somewhere in the Robertinia area, they, oh, well, it was, I spoke to them just a, a few days after they'd done this, and I think they were still a little bit shell-shocked about what they'd been through. So this was a, this was a classic Russian position, uh, a trench dug into a tree line, uh, very well defended, huge minefield in front of it. This was the fourth attack, they told me. So the first attack failed, second attack succeeded, was kicked out by a Russian counter-offensive, counter-attack. Third failed again. So this was their fourth try. And... The way they did, they managed to identify through reconnaissance uh, a gap in the Russian minefield. Instead of going straight for it, they um, and this is, I think, I think they were quite lucky with this because this time they did get their vehicles out, which they don't they don't often want to risk them. So they flanked this tree line. So if you can imagine, you're facing a tree line. They went round. I suppose you're facing it, the left hand side, with their Bradleys, got into the field behind it, drove along about halfway. And then they dismounted from the Bradleys and they and they assaulted through the tree line towards the Russian trench that was facing the Ukrainian positions on on the north side of the tree line. And pretty much everything <laughs> he said to me, you know, it's a cliche that, you know, everyone has a plan so they get punched in the face. And it's always like that. Everything goes wrong. So the idea was that there'd been a preparatory bombardment and the, the Russians were meant to have given up or run away. They hadn't. The Bradleys came in and shot up the trenches with their um, anti-personnel ammunition. It didn't really work. The trenches were two meters deep. The tree line was pretty thick, so that wasn't effective. Reconnaissance had identified these kind of little communication trenches that they were going to get into to gain access to the main, the main trench system, but they couldn't find them. So they just found themselves assaulting through these trees, get into the trench. And the guy said, you know, it's, it's the first assault team, about five people. 
within about two minutes three of them are wounded there's only two still fighting grenades coming in from all directions gets in the trench one of the guys tells me three grenades go off straight away first guy takes most of the takes most of the shrapnel second guy takes some as well i'm standing behind them and there's a lot of smoke from grenades i'm asthmatic so i start having an asthma attack but i've still got to fight so <laughs> he's then confronted by a russian soldier he, he thinks he's only about four meters away from him it's dark there's muzzle flashes to, firing at him he fires back at the muzzle flashes they both miss the russian tries to run out away over the get out of the trench and run away along the top lifts his rifle and fires at him misses describes throwing grenades firing his rifle taking his inhaler out of his pocket taking a suck putting it back in and they're, they're stuck there for about half an hour expecting the the other teams from their company and the other battles to come and support them but they don't really understand why then taking so long um and eventually one of the guys who's still fighting um kind of assumes the, the guys who are meant to come on the flank are arriving, but they're not. So he assaults down the trench, realizes he's assaulting all by himself, um, and he's incredibly vulnerable. Um, and he said, well, what he did was he just grabbed a, he grabbed a Russian machine gun and got it back to where the other guys were. And they used that machine gun to hold off the Russian counterattack until finally, after about half an hour of this, the rest of the company came in, cleared the position, and secured it. So a huge amount of luck. And then they were reflecting on it and they said, well, you know, actually thinking about it, what won that fight? Well, we knew that if we tried to retreat, we would be dead in like two minutes flat. We had no choice. And the Russians were able to fall back to a position. That's basically what decided that fight. So that gives you an idea of the realities of trying to take ground in these, you know, in this offensive, which I think we're, you know, we're still saying is still going on. Um, but if you're wondering why it takes so long, it's so slow for that little bulge on the map to expand, you know, that's why. Roland, hi, mate. It's Dom here. Really interesting perspective there to describe the ground as you are. And I was just reminded, it, it sounds very much like the bocage of northern France sort of after D-Day. It took the Allies weeks to get out of the, after they've made the, the, the beachheads, it took them weeks to then push on because the ground sounds fairly similar. It was sort of high-sided lanes with, with hedgerows that, that covered anti-tank teams running around all over the place. The tanks were moving in those lanes, couldn't, couldn't really see over the top. And the, um, and the, the way that the villages were scattered around there and the and the trees and the forestry blocks as you described they were all within a couple of kilometers of each other which was just perfect anti-tank range so as the they had the germans had this all these little groups of infanteers that were able to effectively produce a lattice work a network of, of kind of an anti-tank matrix basically so it took the allies weeks to get through all that it sounds pretty similar i mean we need to get francis back to, to have a proper historical analysis and see what kind of the casualties that were taken and what kind of effort it took to get through that because it sound does sound um very similar and i've also been i've been told from from elsewhere that the um the minefields not only incredibly dense in terms of the mines per square meter but i, I wonder if you've heard this roland I, I was also told that they were stacked mines were being stacked one on top of another so whilst you get the specialized mine clearance vehicles that are then designed to, to pull these things up and if they if they detonate then so be it but they're designed to get underneath them so they don't get under the vehicle but so they might clear one or perhaps two at the top layer but there's still another one or two underneath that i don't know if you'd heard that at all and that then is blowing the tracks off of the uh, the mine clearance vehicle and, and then you then you're back to on your belt buckle with your bayonet stabbing around looking for the metal thing is that have you, have either of those things been relayed to you at all you know, the guys you're speaking to 
they they didn't mention specifically the stacked mines, but I've, I have read and heard about that elsewhere. What what the sappers said to me was, look, this is absolutely not like you read in the textbooks. So the Russians have taken the textbook, the old Soviet kind of, you would deploy this number of mines here and so on, and they've they've chippled it, they've expanded it. And, and he said, you know, when we got here at the beginning of the offensive, we realized the Russians have got really inventive. They've really adapted. And there's everything is booby-trapped. So every mine you're trying to, to take out, there's going to be maybe a grenade attached to it. Yeah, maybe, you know, kind of triple stacked, things like that. The infantry, I mean, he, he, he was reluctant to talk about mine vehicles that had been lost and stuff, but he did say, we haven't got that many of them. And the other thing about the mine clearance vehicles is they're absolute priority target for the Russians. So if, if a Russian drone operator sees a leopard tank and a demining vehicle side by side, he'll go for the deminer because that's crucial for getting through the minefield. The guys, the infantry guys who've assaulted rely on the sappers to get through, they, they were saying, look, um, these, so the Vicent is one of the ones that the Ukrainians use, and it's basically a leopard chassis with a, with a big plow on the front. That plow will basically be disabled after a few mines. And if you've got a triple stack mine, obviously, you know, the, the explosion is that much bigger. So as you say, back on your belt buckle with your bayonet, literally going through stuff. You've seen, I mean, you remember that movie, The Hurt Locker, about American sappers in Iraq, right? And yeah. where it's all about huge networks of, of like shells that have all been linked up and actually the that's actually a distraction and actually the real charge is over there. But the sapper captain was talking about stuff like that all the way through to the trench system. When you get into the trench system, the Russians who've known that there's a Ukrainian attack coming and they're anticipating going, they've already booby-trapped everything, so you can't touch anything. And he was saying, look, you get into a Russian trench system, don't touch, there's a kettle, don't touch that, don't touch the light, don't touch that. Quite often I'll get in there, I'll spot something that I think is suspicious, but that's a mistake because if you see something that's suspicious, you're meant to see it and think it's suspicious, actually it's a trap. I said, you just, you know, it takes... He said, it, it would take, a, take someone about two minutes less than that to set up a, a trap like that. It would take me and my guys, God knows how long, an hour or two to, to demine it. And that, so, so yeah, the short answer to your question, Dom, is, is yes, absolutely. That and an incredibly inventive and dense kind of variations of it. Roland, just one more question from me. I mean, you might not have an answer to this, but what did they say about the future? What were they looking towards the, the next few months? And um, were they positive or negative what was your sense i mean i think i think they, these guys had been basically in combat for three months by this point i think probably about to be rotated out i don't think there was much left overall uh, i i don't i don't honestly know if they're still fighting now or not but i think that unit was probably getting to the point where it had to be rotated out so i, I don't know how long it would take to rebuild them i mean my impression is that losses have been you know quite quite considerable but I think I think their sense was that you know it's going to be another another brigade's work, you know it's going to be their turn to carry on the fight in this direction. I mean I, I don't I don't think it's any great secret to to say that the chances if if, if this continues in this way, um, the chances of reaching the Sea of Azov this year are basically zero, and even getting as far as Tokmak, which is the stated objective, is obviously going to be difficult. And you have to remember that. <laughs> I know there's all kinds of things they were talking about, but they also talked about the kind of this kind of natural sorting process that combat goes in. So this was this was a fresh brigade, and it was they included very experienced soldiers, but a lot of the guys were pure civilians before they joined up. And they were talking about how, like, you know, you realise 
as things go on that there's only actually a few people who can do this kind of work. There's only a few people, natural people, who do not just naturally freeze in in this kind of combat. And those people are are incredibly valuable. But once you lose a couple of those people, you know, the guys who don't lose their heads when you come under fire are able to shout, come on, keep going. And those people are the people who will keep an infantry unit in combat, mobile, and carrying on. So one of the questions is, is how many of those guys are there? How many of those guys has the next unit got? And can they really punch through to the point where is the strategic objection of the, of the, of the counteroffensive, of course, is to cut that land bridge? You know, even if they can get to a point where they can project artillery or rockets against the, the main Russian communication lines, maybe they don't have to completely cut the land bridge. Although, you know, in my experience, when people say they've got fire control over a road, that doesn't mean the road is closed. You can still run through it. But all, all those human factors, these very human factors, are going to dovetail into the, uh, into the future of this, of this battle, quite honestly. I think I'm losing my threads. So I'll better pause right there. Well, thank you very much, Roland, for talking us through all of that. It was, I think, invaluable to hear. Uh, let's go to our final thoughts then. Joe Barnes in Granada. Yeah, so my kind of thoughts uh, departing Granada is the apparent and perceived waning of Western support for Ukraine. There's, we've got the world sort of reported and trodden on ground of what's happening in the US, but Europe, it does seem to be a little different. There's Again, I mentioned Slovakia and Poland earlier, but I think on a wider scale, the support is still, is still there, and I, I wouldn't say it's gone away, but I do see a slight shift in the focus of countries, especially countries that are facing elections. I've this is the second of the three European political communities I've been at. Cause the one held in Moldova. I was actually in Ukraine at the time, so I missed that. And the first two were entirely focused on sort of Ukraine. They were really all about Ukraine and what is Europe's response to the Russian invasion. This event seemed to lose that focus, and migration became possibly what was the main issue at the summit. And I just fear as this war goes on, support won't wane entirely. It won't just drop off the side of a cliff. But what we will do is we'll see more policies rolled out by governments that are probably seen as more voter-friendly. So there'll be a bigger focus on migration. You, you see, like Rishi Sunak, stop the boats policy is one of his top five agenda points of his government. And I just see things like that and more domestic focused policies will rear their head and become a focus so it's i think it's important and uh especially with roland's reporting there telling the stories of what are mostly sort of civilians guys that were plumbers painters barbers, now fighting a war for the, their country's survival to be told just to give people a bit of perspective about what people are fighting for other than just sort of european leaders saying oh we can't afford to send that we need to think about our people at home who are living in entirely safe and mostly very nice countries. Thank you very much, Joe. Roland Oliphant. Yeah, hi. Um, I was just thinking about what what those squaddies said to me um, and, and talking about the current debate about Western support. I think I think there's a couple of lessons or a couple of things to take away. The first is there, there are serious things that I think NATO and the West have to have a look at and acknowledge when wrong. One of which I think is the training. I mean, like pretty much everyone I've spoken to 
you know, Ukrainian fighters pretty unimpressed with the level of training they received from NATO and a universal, a very widespread sense that it didn't anticipate the kind of fighting they ended up doing. Uh, it was kind of, there were, there are patches of, you know, these guys saying patches of absolute brilliance, really, really useful stuff, but also this weird emphasis on stuff that would have been appropriate in the war on terror, but is completely inapplicable to storming a trench defended by the Russian army. So that's that's one thing. There's other there's other little holes. Things like it turns out M16 rifles, which these guys were issued with, are not very good for storming trenches because they're too long and they tend to jam a bit with the kind of dust and dirt that you get. And these guys went on that particular assault I was telling you about with AKs that they'd taken off Russians in previous assaults. So all these little lessons. But the other thing, these kind of highlights. So number one, the Bradley fighting vehicle genuinely saves lives. These guys consider it absolutely amazing if they tried to do what they did in old soviet kit they would all be dead basically so that's really important the other thing u.s cluster munitions very controversial a lot of quite appropriate concerns about the morality of using these things but nonetheless in this particular battle these guys were saying those weapons arrived at just the right time they immediately made a difference and what they do is they break up russian counterattacks, so it allows them to secure tree lines and then when the Russians start pushing forward, you, the, the cluster munitions allow them to hold on to that new position until they can, you know, reinforce it and dig in. And that all leads me to the point of we're having this, we're all watching what's happening in the United States at the moment about continued, you know, whether they're going to continue to fund um, support to Ukraine. Stuff like that is really, really crucial. So there is no underestimating how, no overestimating, it's really, really important what happens in the U.S., over the next couple of weeks but that question about about continued funding continued supplies of these weapons shouldn't be underplayed i think all our eyes should be on that well thank you very much joe from granada um colin calling from Harkiv, roland dom nichols would you like the very final words yeah thanks david my my final thought today is it comes out of the attacks in the last in the last two days i think putin and the rest of his terrified gang of kremlin cronies don't care that we think their behaviour is illegal or disgusting, that we might see it as a sign of weakness and desperation rather than what they might think is a display of strength and strategic brilliance. They want us to be horrified and appalled. And why? Well, because they're trying to build on this context right now, as we've just been discussing, questions being asked about how much Ukraine is supported by those outside the country, how that might change, how many weapons are there left to give. And Russia wants us... To, in this context, to be so traumatised and terrorised that we say to our political leaders, oh, God, yeah, just make it stop, make the killing go away, make the misery go away, push Zelensky for a compromise, even if it means Russia gains some land. But I think to do so would be a mistake and would be a betrayal of Denis and Andre Kozier, their families and friends and everything that they were prepared to fight for. I think it would be a betrayal of the grandmother and her grandson killed this morning in Kharkiv. There will be other attacks on civilians, as Russia can't do much else and believes it warped in a warped way, believes it formed some sort of strategy to erode external support. So we must prepare ourselves for more of this. But we also need to dig in. We need to keep the conversations going with our friends and neighbours who may have switched off to what's happening in Ukraine, as painful as those conversations will be. We need to keep pressure on our elected leaders. We need to use our voices no matter how many people are listening. And as you know, David, a lot of people 
contact us here at the Telegraph and ask, oh, you know, what can I do to help? What action can I take? Who's going to listen to me? And I've said before that we might only be able to do one little thing. We might only be able to talk to one other person, a family member, neighbour, someone in the shops. But if so, we should do it. It all helps. And I think we should do it for Ukraine. I think we should do it for the people killed yesterday and this morning and for those whose lives will be torn apart in the future. We should do it because standing up to this disgusting behaviour is, I believe, to be on the right side of history. We should do it, I think, also for ourselves, because although we may be many thousands of miles away from the front line, we are involved. The war is taking a toll on us too, and we need to exercise ownership and agency over our feelings and our mental health if we are to keep offering the level of support that is so much needed and welcomed. And everyone listening to this podcast has the power to do that. And we will be with you every step of the way. Thanks, Dom, Roland, Joe and Colin. This week was Conservative Party Conference and the new Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, was top billing. I wanted to speak to our defence editor, Danielle Sheridan, to get her thoughts on Britain's new defence secretary after just a few weeks in the job. Well, Danny, thank you so much for your time. In the past week, we've seen the Conservative Party conference. You've been closely watching Defence Secretary Grant Shapps. It's the first time we've seen him in his new role so often and so intensely in a few days. What did you make of what he said at conference? Thanks for having me on. Yes, it was really important to see Grant Shapps in this role. It's a new brief. Earlier this year, we had the DSEI land warfare, arms fair, you name it, fair, and he should have attended and he would have made speeches and all the military chiefs were there but he had a bereavement in his family so wasn't able to come so this really was his big kind of debut really where he would discuss the defense brief in detail and I thought he presented himself really well one major thing that came out of it was when he was pressed on whether or not he'd commit to a 3% rise of GDP on defence spending. Obviously, that's been a hot topic for some time now. Liz Truss, when she was running to be Tory leader, presented it as a big part of her manifesto. And Grant Shapps was quick to correct the record and say, actually, he was the one that came up with that idea. And he did say he believes that we should be rising our defence spend to 3%. However, left himself wiggle room when putting that out there by saying you know I'm not saying it in the immediate sense I'm saying in the longer term it could be something that we get to but yes I believe that that is the right goal to have so don't expect anything anytime soon in terms of an uplift and defense spending but we do have someone that wants to go in that trajectory However, saying that, of course, the Defence Secretary will want more money spent on defence. But you do have to square it with a rise in costing living, how much we're putting financially into Ukraine. Someone has to draw the line somewhere. And when you're seeing other nations not even reaching the commitment of 2.5%, why should we, the UK, be increasing what we're spending when other nations haven't reached it. And that is something he got into. And just looking at Ukraine, obviously, the Ukraine war dominated Ben Wallace's time as Defence Secretary over the past 1920 months. And before that, what did you make of remarks from Grant Shapps this conference? Do you think that we're going to see a change maybe in the style of leadership from the from the Defence Secretary? What did you make of what he said and what he was thinking, clearly thinking about when it came to Ukraine? Well, I was really impressed that he 
well, what his story with Ukraine has been. You know, he's had a family of refugees living with him from Ukraine. I don't know how many cabinet ministers beside Ben Wallace visited Ukraine, but he did. And I have been impressed by his personal connection with it. He revealed during conference that his surname is actually of Polish origin and he has spoken about how his family were, you know, forced to to flee Poland. So it's obviously something that does hold something personal to him. So I don't believe that we will see any kind of wavering in support. The Prime Minister's made that clear, as has he. But in terms of how that support comes if it's in the traditional sense. Ben Wallace, the former Defence Secretary, said the other day that he, as he left office, told Sunak he needed to put 2.3 billion more into Ukraine. That's a 50% uplift on what we've currently been giving them. And that money doesn't just grow on trees. So I don't think Shaps wants the onus of putting more money into Ukraine to be coming from the UK specifically. But perhaps he sees that the UK will have a role. And this is what I have been told. He sees the UK having a role in encouraging other nations to provide more money, more weapons, more ammunition. I had a story in the paper the other day. This came from a senior military chief who said that the cupboards are dry, we don't have any more stock to be giving to Ukraine. And I put to the person, we've given 14 Challenger 2 tanks, are you sure we couldn't spare, you know, five more? And they said, absolutely not. It's not possible for us to to give away more tanks. So I think that creates a very stark picture of where we are and what we can give in terms of capabilities. And don't forget, we are living through a cost of living crisis. And I recently interviewed Sarah Atherton, who's going to be the next or likely to become the next chair of the Defence Select Committee after Tobias Elwood had to resign. And she said she does her job by speaking to her constituents. And what she says in Parliament is led by what she hears on the doorstep. And when she's got people in Wrexham saying that they can't afford to heat their home, nor buy substantial food to feed their family how can she then back giving a hell of a lot of money to Ukraine when she is seeing suffering at home so you know it is a really tough one and thank god I'm not a politician I don't have to make that decision that's something that now falls on Grant's shoulders and I think it will be really tough for him and um, in a way Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson got a lot of glory they were both in power when this war broke out and it was quite defining for both of them and and their legacy whilst Boris has obviously been marred in controversy a lot of it will focus on what they did for Ukraine but they were kind of lucky in a sense because they went into it when the war was fresh you know it was outrageous what was happening and people were really fired up about it and wanted to support and felt it was right to put this money into it but it's a war of attrition it's dragged on and now the reality is hitting home and there's an element of fatigue and people are saying if this is just going to go on and on for years what are we going to do back home and lastly Shaps did respond to the story I wrote regarding we don't have any more tanks to give. And he said, we mustn't forget that whilst we want to help Ukraine, we have to protect ourselves too. And 
When those 14 Challenger 2 tanks were originally given away in February, the head of the army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, said that it will leave the UK temporarily weaker without that capability. And I think Shap's saying we must still look after ourselves plays into to that mentality of whilst it's important to keep helping Ukraine, we also mustn't forget that we need to protect the defence of the realm and we do that by having, you know, stuff in the cupboard in case the worst were to happen. So just just to finish off very quickly, it seems from what you're saying that you were impressed broadly uh, and at the moment support for Ukraine seems pretty solid, but there seems like there might be some warning clouds ahead. I definitely agree with that, that there are warning clouds ahead. I think he's got a really tough job on his hands because he's picked up a war where there is fatigue among the general public and that's a difficult thing to navigate. One last thing I would say in terms of why I was impressed by Shaps, he doesn't have a military background and that was presented as a negative when he was promoted to this role. And that was put to him at conference. And he he said he didn't agree with that because as he saw it, it doesn't matter if he was a captain 20 years ago. What matters is that he understands how politics works. He understands the machine of number 10. He understands that as a politician, it is his job to work with the experts, work with Tony Radican, Patrick Sanders, Richard Knighton, you know, Benki, these are all the chiefs of the military, work with them in his role as politician and take guidance from them and then make a decision on what's best rather than going in and saying, oh, well, you know, I served, so I, I maybe I, I know best. He's saying that actually maybe that could be a hindrance and him coming in as fresh meat, in a sense, can actually be a good thing. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. On Tuesday, I spoke to Alessia Vasilenko, a People's Deputy for Ukraine who was visiting the UK to attend the Conservative Party annual conference. I started by asking her what she was trying to get out of the trip. The Conservative Party conference as the Labour conference for Ukrainians is a major opportunity to tell our stories, to ram up more support for Ukraine and to make sure that, the, that we say thank you for the support that we have received already. What kind of conversations have you been having with uh, British MPs? Are you encouraged by the level of support you're receiving? The support from the British people and the uh, British members of Parliament who represent those people is huge. It's tremendous, not just in the amounts uh, that Ukraine is receiving, but also in the fact that Britain is the example for the world to follow. Very often the UK has stepped up when other countries were wary of helping Ukraine and has demonstrated that it's only with uh, an effort of solidarity and with a joint effort that we can achieve the goal of approaching victory for Ukraine and victory for democracy in that matter. Do you think there's more the United Kingdom could do? What have you been telling your Conservative counterparts here? Have you been urging them to follow any particular policies or or new course of action? Uh, we need these policies to materialise much faster. And when I say these policies, we need a decision on the ability to use Russia's arrested assets that sit in the national banks of the UK and of the other countries as well. The UK here could again be the example to follow. Uh, we need a solution as to the companies that still continue to operate in the Russian markets and that are not being sanctioned by their own countries. In the UK, 73, 
three British companies, 73 British companies, remain in Russia doing business as usual. So there must be some form of uh, either sanctioning of these, uh, of these companies or a form of where the revenues these companies receive in Russia go to the humanitarian efforts to help Ukraine. Uh, moreover, we need also a decision on the tribunal uh, against the Russian aggression. This tribunal needs to be set up, it needs to be set up not just with Ukraine's efforts but with the international community's efforts. Uh, all the war crimes we are talking about today, the near famine situation in Africa and some of the countries in Asia and the Middle East caused by the grain not being able to be exported from Ukraine, that all started with Russia's aggression which started back in 2014 and that crime of aggression needs to be definitely condemned and there needs to be reprimands and responsibilities of Russia. And finally, what we are also asking our conservative counterparts and the conservative government is to start the dialogue of imagining what Russia will look like after it loses. It's not just about getting Ukraine to win and the victory for democracy, but it's also making sure that Putin's authoritarian regime has lost and has lost for good and with that loss and fall of the totalitarian regime we are we would like to see a responsibility of the state of the russian federation and we would like to see well a simple i'm sorry from the people of russia to the people of ukraine but also the reparations that need to be paid out to the people of ukraine and the government and the state of ukraine for all the losses that have been incurred because of the war russia is waging against us so at conference, you feel like your voice, um, you, you, yeah, your voice is being heard. We hope that our voice is being heard here definitely when we are having dialogues bilaterals just like you and I talking or when we are addressing events, side events, fringe events. Uh, of course we are being heard while we are in the room. The task is then to make sure these words materialize into action, into concrete legislation, policies and action. Our impression in the UK is that Ukrainians really warmed to and had huge affection for Boris Johnson, Boris Johnsonyuk. What do you think the Ukrainians think about Rishi Sunak and is there more he could do maybe to show his commitments to, to the Ukrainian cause? Well, Boris Johnson was, of course, a very vibrant personality and he was present on the ground in Ukraine quite a lot and it, made, it really made a difference when he was the first Western leader who dared step in wartime Ukraine and wartime Kyiv. Uh, and uh, walk the streets casually with President Zelensky. So, of course, the picture remains very vivid in uh, the, the, the minds of the Ukrainian people. Uh, however, I cannot say that Rishi Sunak's policies are less robust uh, for helping Ukraine and fighting Russia's aggression that, uh, in comparison to what was happening under Boris Johnson's government. Perhaps uh, Rishi Sunak's government has even managed to do more with the weapon deliveries, with the ammunition deliveries, uh, was the financial aid that is ongoing for Ukraine and Ukrainians. And I hope very much that whatever party the next government is from, that this support for Ukraine and Ukrainians will remain and will grow. Talking to your Conservative counterparts here, at the end of conference, they'll go home to their constituencies, safe constituencies. What do you tell them about your life and the, the lives of families uh, and parliamentarians in Ukraine during the full-scale invasion? 
it's almost like speaking about a parallel reality or a different universe. Uh, in Ukraine, it's, it's war. Even when you're sitting down in a, a seemingly peaceful uh, cafe or restaurant in Kiev, your routine can be interrupted anytime by an air raid siren. And that's when your brain's process starts to kick in and you start making the decision whether to run to a shelter or whether to remain and go about your daily life. But even when you make the choice to go about your daily life without paying much attention to the air raid siren, uh, there's still a part of your subconscious that is saying to you that, look, you're taking the risk now and that risk could be fatal. It's even worse so when you have your children with you in the country, when you have elderly parents or relatives who are in hospitals, for example. Every time the, the stress levels that we live through in Ukraine as Ukrainians, they they really impact our lives in a way that it's impossible to actually convey with words. You have to be there and you have to live through these situations and these circumstances yourself with your own family present there. It's a whole different experience when you're there on your own as an adult person who has, in your right state of mind, made the conscious decision to, to be there. It's a whole other story when you, you, you are living that life with a lot of people for whom you bear the responsibility and the aware it's really nothing that you can do about it and you leave a lot of your life up to fate and up to fate but also to the armed forces of Ukraine and every day in Ukraine we say thank you to the armed forces of Ukraine every day that we wake up every day that we go to bed for another day of well a seemingly peaceful life. How has your family's life changed in the past 19 months? Have you been able to find any sense of normality? Um, where are you now as, as a unit? I think that my family is the same as every Ukrainian family is grasping for every opportunity to live life as normal as possible. So the children need to go to school, there needs to be playtime organized, there needs to be you know, some fun elements to your life. And every time you do that, you try to also quench down on the guilt that is rising because you realize that at this point in time, while you're eating your lunch or you're having your fun, there's somebody dying on the front line for you to be able to enjoy this peaceful life. Or there's another family who has already lost someone or there's families living with the father being completely disabled because of this war. Displaced families is a whole other story, a very sad story, a very tragic story. Then we're, we have six million Ukrainians living abroad. These are families that have been separated. Some of them have now been separated for life because the rate of divorces has gone up dramatically in Ukraine these days. And the, the effect this war is ha having on the general mental health of the population, especially of the youth that is growing up with this burden of war, which will accompany them throughout their whole life. This is a whole wartime generation which is being formed in Ukraine right now. So these are all the issues about which we like not to think right now or try not to think right now because right now we have to deal with survival we have to deal with approaching the victory of ukraine with everything possible uh, with every little helps if you like uh, whatever one can do is doing to approach the victory of ukraine but the consequences that we will need to deal with after the victory um, i mean the list is just infinite when you go back to ukraine and back to the rada what message or thoughts will you take from your experience here in the UK? What, what will you be telling them? Well, definitely that there's the support and there's the readiness to support Ukraine even more, but that we need to continue on our side, we need to continue 
with steady and sustainable international efforts and international communications to keep telling the stories of Ukraine. The fact that people are growing tired, and I'm not afraid of that word tired, is Russia's objective. Russia is trying to pull Ukraine into this protracted conflict and with Ukraine trying to pull in all of the partners of Ukraine into this protracted conflict whereby everybody will be completely worn out, exhausted, not wanting to think or care about the war anymore. Now, we must not give in and despite this tiredness, which we must acknowledge, we must have a conscious approach to what we are doing, to the way we are communicating, what we are communicating and also our interlocutors, our recipients on the other side in the UK, in France, in African countries, Latin American countries, they must also be aware that the war is still going on in Ukraine. Just on that, my final question really is about that that, that worry. I mean, we've seen the election of Robert Fico in Slovakia. Uh, there's murmurs in the US about maybe falling US support for, for, for Ukraine. What's your reaction to that and how will Ukraine and its allies seek to combat that, do you think? Well, Slovakia has been supporting Ukraine throughout the war, so with the change of leadership, my hopes are that the people will not give up and that the people realize that uh, turning their back on Ukraine is actually making themselves vulnerable to the risk of uh, of the Russian threat approaching towards them. Whereas uh, the US support, there's ongoing work through our diplomatic channels and through the leadership of our country to make sure that the support of the uh, Biden administration does not waver and that it is continued on a bipartisan level, bipartisan level uh, from all sides. At the moment we're talking only about the interim budget and we're hoping that the fact that there's no Ukraine aid clause in the interim budget that it will appear in the main budget and possibly uh, is going, the military support at least is going to be increased for Ukraine. Thank you, Lassia. My final interview from Conservative Party conference is with British Conservative MP Jack Lepresti. Chair of Conservative Friends of Ukraine, I spoke to Jack about his time in the country, his work supporting Ukraine, and the future of the Western Alliance. I was asked to take over the chairmanship of it back in the summer, which I was very glad to do, because John Whittingdale used to be the chairman, and he's obviously doing ministerial duties at the moment, and I was delighted to be able to do it. I serve on the all-party group for Ukraine, And I've got my own APPG for sovereign defence manufacturing capability. And in my own constituency, I have MOD Defence Equipment and Support, which does all the procurement for not only our military, but all the sort of procuring and moving of kit and equipment to Ukraine. So, you know, there are three strands there, which give you an indication of why I'm involved and why I'm passionate to support the Ukrainians. And um, so far in your chairmanship, what would you point to as the sort of big achievements that you think you've got through this group? What we've done is we've managed to start to reach out and build a solid network of supporters. We had a very successful event last night where we had Liz Truss speaking, we had the Secretary of State, other Defence Ministers and also Defence Minister from Ukraine. So I think starting to build a a structure and an organisation within the party uh, is a very good thing to do and a very useful thing to do. You've just recently returned from Ukraine. Can you tell us about your experiences there? What did you see? Where did you go? It was a very brief visit. There was a defence conference seminar for defence manufacturers across Europe. So there were some British representatives, some, you know, some French, some Germans, and the president spoke and kicked the conference off Friday morning. BE were there, Babcock from the UK. So it was a, a, a getting together of you know, big defence manufacturers and SMEs to look at how we can start to build you know, an arsenal of freedom in Ukraine for, for all of us, really. 
Something the Ukrainian MPs I've been speaking to today have said to me is that you can't really explain to people what life is like there and the experiences they're going through unless you've seen it yourself. So I'd, I'd love to know your reflections having actually been there and seen it. Well, it's, there are contrasting aspects to it. You arrive in, in Kiev and it looks like any other, at first glance, European city until you start to see the, the sandbags and the military checkpoints and the fact there's a curfew. But there's still a great vibrancy and energy about the place. I mean, we were supposed to go to a, um, a British manufacturer's new office on Friday evening to help them open it, and there was an air raid. So they were hunkered down in a bunker, and yet, you know, Tom and I were walking around on our way to another meeting, and the bars were full. There were people literally milling in the streets, and there was almost a sense of defiance you know, they might be at war and they might be under attack, but they're going to try and carry on and live their life as normal as possible. So that's one aspect. I went to the front line in July, and that was a long drive from Kiev down to Zaporizhia and then another bit the next morning. So, you know, it's a, a day and a, and a bit's travelling. And obviously, there we were in a muddy field. There, dug in, that's where they were living, that's where they were fighting. We saw British kit stuff we'd supplied them we spoke to troops who were trained in the UK which was amazing so that was the contrast so they're very distinctive very distinctive I mean they do have regular attacks in Kiev where you know, the sirens go and most people have got apps on their phone but the, but it is a contrast to getting closer to the front line where some pretty desperate and difficult fighting is taking place was it quite an emotional moment for you to talk to these soldiers trained in Britain using British yes gear? it was very much so it was it was fantastic and they were so I mean their morale was extremely high and they spoke about you know some difficulties getting kit it was gunners essentially who we, who we spent most of the time because I was a gunner and my son is in, uh, in one RHA and some of the AS90s which is the self-propelled artillery looks a bit like a tank were from his regiment which were there but to speak to the the boys there was a three-man crew on this gun off young officer and two people I would guess probably in their late 20s, early 30s. And they were builders before the war. They enlisted and they were trained in, in Lark Hill and in the Wiltshire. And, you know, and their spirit was astonishing. It was inspirational. You know, they were there to do a job. They said that our, I don't even know how sort of gunnery works, but you have the, the shell and you have the charge, the, the bags of charge, which go behind the, the shell to ignite the thing and send it off. Um, they've got some old American stuff which they kept having to strip down and put back together again. So they much preferred ours, which was stable. And ours had a, sort of, a bit of foil on it, which kept their gun clean. So they were very taken by the fact that our supplies and our artillery rounds were much superior to the Americans. And yeah, if you just look at them, I mean, they were, they were looking after themselves. They were clean. They were organized, really focused. And the, the morale was, was astonishing. Uh, and they were telling me about how our trainers in the Royal School of Artillery were so impressed with their spirit when they were training and learning how to, to operate this equipment from scratch. In the last week, we've seen um, some issues potentially for the Western Alliance supporting Ukraine with the election of Robert Fico in Slovakia, and there's continuing questions about the American election next year. Do you detect any murmurings or problems either in the Conservative Party or Parliament as a whole as to British support? No. Uh, I mean, I share those concerns. I mean, I'm hoping to get across to Washington in the next few weeks to talk to Congress people. We've had a few meetings with various people since we've been here. But no, as far as the British commitment goes, I mean, we are, as a United Kingdom, as the House of Commons, I think, completely united and understand 
you know, the, the ramifications of getting Putin out of Ukraine uh, and, and ensuring that country remains free and independent and stable for all of us. I mean, they're fighting our war, essentially. This has been going on since 2014, you know, incrementally, bit by bit. So, no, as far as the UK goes, I don't think there's any doubt that we're there, we're going to do more, and that support's going to remain whatever happens in the future. Do you have any um, questions or worries about the Labour Party's position on Ukraine at all? We're going to the Labour conference in a week and we'll be asking many of the same questions. And it seems like it's been a very sort of bipartisan area of support within British politics. What, what's your take on that? I think that's correct. I don't see any diminution of support from, from any, any part of the House of Commons. I think, I think it is a united effort. I think it is, there's complete agreement and support and I don't see any real difference, if I'm honest. Is there anything we haven't spoken about you think you'd like to mention? Well, I'm working on... I mean, a lot of the meetings I'm having in Ukraine and a lot of the stuff I'm doing here is trying to make bilateral working collaboration between British and Ukrainian defence companies easier and quicker. Because ultimately, the Ukrainians are going to have to upscale their industrial capacity to produce a lot more of their own kit. We need to replenish our our, our, uh, supplies and our stockpiles. And there's a lot of innovation and really clever stuff going on with UAV technology in, in Ukraine. So I think we could work together very effectively. And we've seen BAE, you know, operating under license. Babcock, are, I would say, with, uh, are there as well. So that's what I've been sort of focusing on, to try and break through the bureaucracy, make it easier and get, and get things done. Just two more things, if I may. That implies, and I, I've been hearing this from analysts, politicians, that this is going to be a long war this is going to be at least a year, another few years. Is that the sense you get as well? Well, I don't know about a few years. And what the Ukrainians have done as far as breaking through the Russian lines without any air cover or air superiority is it's astonishing. So I think progress, you know, it's, it's difficult to break through miles and miles of minefields without being able to pulverise the ground first from the air. So they're doing astonishing, astonishingly well. Years I'm not so sure about but it isn't going to end anytime soon. If, if we imagine the sort of worst-case scenario that the, the Western Alliance fractures in America as well, what will Britain's reaction be, do you think? Well, we led the effort right in the beginning, and I think we'll continue to do so. And, I, and I'm sure not just at our level, you know, backbench members of parliament, you know, at governmental level, conversations are being had. And I'm pretty certain that the Western Alliance will hold together. But... As we led it to begin with, I think we can still maintain, you know, the moral high ground to say, look, you know, we were the first people out there to say, actually, we need to support these people. This is what we've done. This is how well they're doing with the support we've given them so far. Let's just carry on and get the job done. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review. 
as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 